Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum. We have uh, put on almost a thousand programs since the pandemic began. Uh, We've been using our live streaming equipment in order to bring it to people. Uh, And we're very happy that in the last couple of months, we've got people back here. We have a nice live audience in San Francisco for this program. And we have two great authors, Arlie Hochschild and Adam Hochschild. Their last name is the same because they're married. (laughs) So um, they both have independent careers, lots and lots of books that have won lots of awards. Arlie's last one, uh, book is Strangers in Their Own Land, um, but she had time shift, uh, time, uh, the, the time bind, I'm sorry, and, and uh, shift culture. And Adam's uh, latest book was uh, American Midnight, and of course it's known for King Leopold's Ghost, Spain in Our Hearts, Rebel Cinderella, many others. And I get to announce, I think you, you know, but um, Adam's uh, latest book, American Midnight, is a f- Uh, finalists uh, for the California Book Awards, which the Commonwealth Club puts on every year. So that will be announced, the final winner in May, and there will be a program in June for that. So it's fascinating. I mean, you've been married since 1965? 1965. Um, And you know what it's like to, well, maybe you don't know what it's like to be a writer, but it's not that, you know, writers aren't known for their genial personalities when they're writing anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And the fact that the two of you have stayed together for all that time while you're writing books. And so we're going to talk all about that. But the first thing that I want to know is, so there's a little story in there about how you met. And uh-huh. it's, at, it's at a Quaker camp. That's right. I'll explain why you, were both, why you were at a Quaker camp. So. Yeah. Well, this was a, uh, a Quaker camp in Spanish Harlem. Mm-hmm. And it was to spend a week to really learn what the issues are in Harlem. And... Uh, I was um, a sophomore at Swarthmore College, mm-hmm. a Quaker school, and sort of that. Uh, that sort of accounts for it for me. Right. But what was Adam doing there? I, I, <laughs> I was actually a senior in high school, so she snatched me out of the cradle. For <laughs> uh, and that was where we first met each other. Yeah, 1960. 1960. So you knew each other for a few years, but yeah. you, you, you sort of, by the time that you did your studies on the John Birch Society in Santa Ana, California, now that, you know, what a, what a way to kind of get to know each other. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that was, I think that was actually the only piece of writing that we actually co-authored mm-hmm. where we went... This was 1968, I believe, and I was working for (coughs) Ramparts Magazine, which some of you of our age may still remember. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they sent me for a month, and Arlie came along, to live in uh, Santa Ana, which was then the heart of right-wing territory in California. Oddly enough, today the whole county has become democratic and... Mm -hmm. uh, some of our, our most interesting legislators are from there. So your, your influence uh, developed <laughs> oh, over time. Completely. It took like 50 years to take effect, <laughs> but it did. Adam worked as a, uh, a fuller brush salesman. 
to get from home to home, see oh. the sides of people's home. And Arlie <laughs> worked in a American Opinion bookstore, which was yeah. the bookstores run by the yeah. John Birch Society. And we, you know, we joined things and went to meetings and went to right wing churches and then wrote about it all afterwards. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you're let me known about this part of America for 60, 70 years or so, and, and, and it's, uh, you know, have you seen it blossom? Did you s think that it went away for a while and then came back even stronger? Or how do you see it from having been at Ground Zero so long ago? Yeah, it did seem to recede. You know, in the 60s and 70s, you had, you know, the microphone was on the progressive mm -hmm. left side. Um, and the whole uh, Vietnam War and the opposition to it, that seemed to be the main thing. And so I think we had our eye off the ball at that point, weren't, mm -hmm. <laughs> weren't looking at it. Um, but it certainly is now we're in a Thermidorian reaction against mm -hmm. uh, all things we've worked for yeah. all our lives. So... Yeah, and of of course that far right America never went away. No. I mean, don't forget Nixon's Southern strategy, mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan. Uh, you know, the fact that California could elect Ronald Reagan governor is almost more astonishing than the fact that the United States could elect him president, mm -hmm. given what California is today. But I think we've certainly seen over the course of our joint lifetime a a widening split between red and blue America. It was always there, but it's certainly gotten yeah. louder, more visible, oh, yeah. more dramatic yeah. uh, in these last few years. And the people that I've been talking to in my more <coughs> recent work in um, Appalachia, mm -hmm. Eastern Kentucky, people are saying, well, is civil war coming? You know, <laughs> uh, this is, I know the smell of a war about to happen. Mm -hmm. That's the mood, actually. Um, among people I'm talking to. In, in something I read about the, the work you did in Santa Ana, the idea was that a lot of people felt that government regulation and so on was the communism coming in. Communism had to be eliminated. And, and uh, at the same time, you were both interested in eliminating consumerism or, or something <laughs> like that. That, that, that. that part of it was, was going on. I don't know how that, maybe it was a, an analysis in an essay or something that I read, but I thought that that was a co an interesting comment. Did you, did you see it that way at all? Gosh, I don't remember I'm us talking sure. about consumerism. Certainly, we lived in the tiniest apartment, yeah. <laughs> well furniture. So, yeah. <laughs> and certainly, the but. the people around us there were uh, obsessed with communism. I mean, this yes. was the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. The obsession has kind of changed, although it is curious that the total collapse and evaporation of the communist movement in the world mm. hasn't really diminished yeah. the um, power of anti-communism mm. in this country. <laughs> uh, I mean, the United States is a strange place because... <laughs> The communist movement never took hold here in the slightest, mm. nor the more moderate, you know, socialist movement has been such an important thing in the, the politics in Western Europe. But anti-communism has been a huge and powerful force. And, 
you know, uh, at times like uh, under McCarthy in the 1950s and then the period I wrote about in my last book, 1917 to 1921, you know, Red Scare politics dominated this country when there were no Reds to be scared of. It is a very strange paradoxical thing. Mm. And actually when the Communist Party finally essentially went out of business with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, they had only about 5,000 members, uh, 1,500 of whom were FBI informants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That must have been so disappointing to the leaders of that movement to find that out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think they suspected for a long time. Yeah. 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 So if the FBI... Uh, people were, were, you know, paying their dues, that means that they were paying one-third oh, yeah. of the dues to the Communist That's right. Party. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a as a sociologist, uh, Arlie, you know, I mean, you, you've looked at so many different issues over the years, and you've been teaching at, at I mean, I know you're retired now, but how long did you teach at Berkeley as a sociology about professor? About 40, 40. 40 years. So be a sociologist about the University of California, Berkeley. <laughs> so, so how much change took place in those 40 years you were there? I'm sure you've observed since you retired as well what's going on. Why do you think, for example, universities have become more expensive? What, what changes in the way things are done? And, and uh, the influx of women, the influx of... I mean, Berkeley's always had women students, but I assume that well, the percentage has changed quite a bit. Yeah. Only the first woman wasn't let in uh, until three years after... Um, Berkeley was established in yeah. uh, 1868. And, uh, you know, I think uh, since... So it, it's had a strange relationship to women. Um, the proportion of women went up and up and up uh, through 1945. And then it went after the war, it went down. Mm -hmm. And so... Only in the 60s did it really begin to climb up again. Mm -hmm. And I was um, the first tenured woman since um, 1913. <laughs> and oh, wow. When, when I was <laughs> hired in my department, mm -hmm. uh, and when I was hired, 6% of full professors were women, mm -hmm. and something like 20 were associates. And... If we just look at at gender there, it's really interesting because uh, only a, a, something like 30% of undergrads, no, I'm wrong, 40% of undergrads uh, were women in 1960, and now it's, I think, 54% more women undergrads than men. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so, and the faculty are more female. Mm -hmm. So, the Cal band mm -hmm. uh, didn't allow women until um, 1974. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, I, I remember a story, uh, Laura Nader, who is mm -hmm. an anthropologist colleague of mine, uh, when she uh, was first at Berkeley, there was a meeting at the men's faculty club Mm -hmm. And women weren't 
allowed to, uh, they could go through a thoroughfare, but not particular meeting rooms. So she had to go to a meeting, and she climbed in a window of the men's faculty club to go to the meeting. Times have changed. That's good, yeah. 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 You, you, you mentioned 1960, and, and that reminded me that in that Santa Ana period that I was talking about a little earlier, that I don't know if it was you that discovered it or or, or, or Tess, but that, that at that time, between Democrats and Republicans, only four or five percent of Democrats and four or five percent of Republicans would be upset if their children married. Yeah, that one. Yeah. yeah. It's such an interesting. Why don't you tell that that story? Because it's just fascinating about what's happening in our society. Yeah. Yes, uh, there's. Uh, just a kind of a toxification yeah. of the other party. Um, but you are referring to a study done that uh, over time um, found that, it, as you just now said, that you, know, you prefer a partner of your child to be similar in culture, but um, it wasn't true that you would feel really upset 20 years ago mm. if, uh, say, your kid married a Trump lover. <laughs> right. But uh, it's because the parties have, have become very different. And I think what's happened is that the country, what, it's not just the party, but that red states are the the losers of globalization. They're the states with the older industries that are more vulnerable to offshoring and automation. They're the blue-collar, rural, semi-rural states. And they're poorer, and they're doing, they're declining. Mm -hmm. They're doing less well than 10 years ago. Whereas we're in the blue states, newer industries, more uh, uh, sheltered from automation, and offshoring, and we're we're relatively wealthy. We're doing better. Mm. So there are these two. It's, it's not just parties, but it's kind of a stance. Are we? And the, the 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 Republicans are feeling more vulnerable. There's just more loss. And if they're blue collar, the, actually the two social classes mm -hmm. look different. If you're blue collar. You've really been in decline. Your marriage shows that you're less likely mm -hmm. to be married. Your fathers are less likely to be in touch with their children and um, uh, helping out on the football or baseball field. So I think there's a whole malaise there that people in our area are, are less in touch with. Well, it's an amazing statistic that it, the something like it's all right uh, to marry outside of your political party. It sounds like a you know, strange <laughs> question to ask. Yeah. But it was only four or five percent in 1960, and now it's 33 to 45 percent yeah. don't want their children to marry outside their political yeah. party. But it's and, not and just you said the it was even higher than race. Right? Yeah. 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 Even that's higher right. than race. That's yeah. right. Very interesting. Yeah. 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 Weird. It used to be that marrying outside your religion mm -hmm. was a big deal. Yeah, but uh, and in fact, my book *Rebel Cinderella* is about a marriage that yeah, made yeah. the front page of the New York Times because it was between a Jew and a Gentile, mm -hmm. and between somebody who was very rich and very poor. 
but um, it uh, uh, that seems to have diminished in terms oh, of out, being able to outrage people. Take it off? Yeah. In part, I think, because uh, you know there are fewer and fewer people who are religious these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, that was where I was going to go next on American Midnight. Was you know it was it, first. It did such a great job. We just had an hour-long discussion about it six months ago or so. But it did such a great job of showing that the time period from 1917 to 1921 was very similar to what we just went through, but even worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And right. and and the very positive, optimistic part of a very pessimistic book <laughs> <laughs> was was that a few people in good positions f pushed against it, yeah. and it, and it, it collapsed yeah. in a way. It collapsed. Yeah. I mean, it collapsed as part of. A surge of prosperity too, but still, it you can collapse these things. You can't. Yeah. You don't have to just give up that it's going to be this yeah. way forever. I uh, think all of his books has somebody heroic, somebody, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, someone who saw a problem and did something. Mm -hmm. um, so. Rejection. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it, it gets pretty depressing if you just write about the terrible things that happened mm -hmm. in history. <laughs> uh, and I am attracted, though, to periods that get overlooked because they don't fit in with the national mythology, mm -hmm. both for this country and for other countries. And certainly for this country, one of those periods was the one I wrote about in American Midnight, 1917 to 21, which we don't even think of as a period. We think of the First World War being a big event, then the war ends, the veterans come home, ticker tape parades, and then boom, it's the 1920s and everybody's doing the Charleston. But <laughs> there was a period in between there where all this nasty stuff happened, um, press censorship on a huge scale, combination of wartime and the Red Scare, 75 newspapers and magazines shut down, prevented from publishing, uh, uh, vigilante violence that was actually, some of which was encouraged by the Justice Department. Uh, a thousand Americans roughly uh, went to prison for a year or more and a much larger number for shorter periods of time solely because of things they wrote or said. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a, a truly, you know, the, the worst assault on civil liberties in this country since the end of slavery. Uh, but I do think, as you say, George, the encouraging thing was that some good people pushed back against it. Mm -hmm. And finally, people realized, no, the Reds weren't at the door after all. Mm -hmm. And all of the steam sort of went yeah. out. Uh, there was one moment where it turned around where the Attorney General, Mitchell Palmer, who was uh, the leading candidate for the Democratic nomination for president in, in uh uh, May in uh, 1920, the 1920 uh, uh, primary election, predicted that there would be a nationwide communist uprising on May 1st, May Day, <laughs> 1920. Mm -hmm. And they put the National Guard on alert and the cities put extra police officers on duty and J.P. Morgan hired extra guards and the Bureau of Investigation sent special deputies everywhere. Nothing happened. <laughs> and the air sort of went out of the Red Scare. Oh, yeah. The Y2K of 1920. Right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are these moments where we get yeah. frantic, uh, expecting something terrible to happen, yeah. Yeah. and then it doesn't. But that could have been, it was all forgotten. And what you're saying is, well, after what we've been through with Trump, 100 years from now, 
will people remember it? Yeah. You know, I think you're rescuing history. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do think it's important to look at these times when a country goes berserk. Yeah. <laughs> so that we can recognize the symptoms when they're coming at us again. That's yeah. right. Well, let's step outside the United States for a second with King Leopold's ghost and your work on that and, and, and just the whole issue of colonialism and how that obviously was something everyone took for granted and, and competed mm -hmm. to do better at, that they lost all of its, its steam after World War II. So in, in that book about colonialism, what kind of issues did you find both that had kind of caused that thing, and then how did it un get undercut? If you well, I think you know one of the things we we often forget is that uh, all of human history is a, unfortunately a history of conquest, mm -hmm. history of peoples conquering other peoples, and that is how ideas spread. That's how languages spread. That's how technologies spread. Uh, but there's a lot of suffering. In this, in this process as well. Uh, the colonization of Africa is, is something that's always uh, fascinated me and intrigued me, um, in part, I think, because uh, I grew up in a family where my father was an executive of an American mining company that owned interests in mines in what uh, was then the British colony of northern Rhodesia, what today is Zambia. And he made uh, the terrible mistake of, when I was a teenager, of taking me with him on a business trip to Africa. <laughs> and I began to realize that yeah. my college education was being paid for by the labor of African miners working in very hot, damp, sometimes dangerous conditions far under the earth for not much pay. And I realized, you know, that, that uh, you know, all of Africa at that point was still colonized. Um, happily, it is so no longer, but that's a huge part of human history. And of course, you know, the Americas also were colonized uh, in, in different ways, and much of Asia as well. Um, and as I say, I'm always fascinated by the pieces of history that get forgotten. And a particularly egregious episode of that colonization was King Leopold II of Belgium uh, in the 1880s uh, was lusting for a colony of his own. Curiously, Belgium itself was not interested in acquiring a colony because <laughs> the, it was a small country, no navy, no merchant marine, and people felt it was to be an extravagance. But the king was very greedy, very ambitious, hired the explorer Henry Morton Stanley mm -hmm. to essentially stake out the boundaries of this enormous territory in Africa, roughly the same boundaries that today are those of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and he got all the nations, major nations of the world, starting with the United States, to recognize it as his personal possession. Mm. Uh, made a huge fortune, well over a billion dollars in today's American dollars, by starting a slave labor system to gather wild rubber, which was enormously lucrative because they just invented the inflatable bicycle tire, soon followed by the automobile and the need for rubber to coat telephone and telegraph wires. Um, millions of people died as a result of this system. And 
it wasn't that it wasn't noticed at the time, because it was. The first decade of the 20th century, it was the human rights scandal in the world. Uh, Mark Twain wrote about it, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote about it, uh, you know, people were giving speeches all over the place about it. Then it got forgotten. So I'm always interested in these things that mm. get forgotten. Uh, and that was the subject of, of that book. Mm. Well, we're going to go to a big picture of the things that you found fascinating in the 1960s and how they've gone on in, in other issues too. But, uh, but let's go back to your writing life. You know, you, you've each written seven, eight or more books, right? And, and uh, over, over a long period of time, and do you work together? Do you do you read each other's books, or do you say no way until I sh <laughs> get to my final draft? To tell us, tell us how you work together, or don't. <laughs> uh, we very much work yeah. together. Um, I would say we do our first drafts on our own, and a, but we have dinner together every night. <laughs> so uh, we know each other's characters and. <laughs> uh, so, um, with that how's it going question at dinner, you're pretty up to date on, on how the draft is going. And then um, we, a first or a first presentable draft, we give it a hard read. Mm -hmm. And um, criticism from a person that you know is trying to make it better is mm -hmm. really with you, uh, is such a gift, such a gift. It's a little easier than the other kind? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I would say that. Yeah. But we do, we talk about, uh, obviously, yeah. what we're working on, so that by the time it comes to actually read the first draft, uh, I know these people she's been hanging out with in Louisiana on many trips there, and she knows King Leopold like he was a next-door neighbor. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> so there are f few surprises when we actually read the first draft. But we usually each read several drafts of, of the other's book, uh, always, in fact. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, um, it's an enormously useful process. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Somehow we, we each learned early on that, you know, having other people who are sympathetic to what you're doing uh, read and really be tough critics of be your tough. writing is it's the greatest gift that writers can give each other. And the fact that we can give it to each other is, is quite wonderful. And there's also, I think, uh, we help each other when we're stuck. Mm -hmm. uh, and often Adam does that with humor. Mm -hmm. One time, I think it was an article instead of a book, and it was supposed to be hyper-theoretical, and I don't know, my language tightened up, and he just said, oh, I don't know, this isn't going well. And then he uh, got a large sheet of paper and drew a line in the middle with a little... Uh, picture wasn't it snoopy <laughs> saying oh, yeah, 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 it's yeah. been um you know it was a dark and stormy night yeah. you know <laughs> and, this, <laughs> and he got my own writing in which i wrote dramatically and it worked it flowed and then some kind of turgid difficult 
obtuse <laughs> kind of uh, script and put them, he just got some tape and put it by the window just for me to laugh, you know, <laughs> look and go from that to that. <laughs> do, you, do you have your own favorite books of the books you've written and then do you have favorite oh. of your spouses and are they the same? That's my next Ooh, that's, <laughs> that's really great. Uh, I think of my books, my favorite is the memoir I wrote about my relationship with my father, Half the Way Home, mm -hmm. a memoir of father and son. If there's one book that I hope survives me, that would be it. Mm -hmm. And that's my favorite, too, yeah. of his. Of the history books, uh, I think my book about the First World War, To End All Wars, mm -hmm. is definitely my favorite, because uh, I think I found a a new and quite different way of talking about something that uh, literally more than 100,000 people have written books about before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, for Arlie's books, I think my favorite might be The Second Shift. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the book about the division of housework and childcare mm -hmm. inside marriages that I like to tell her it caused an epidemic of battered husbands all over the world. Uh, <laughs> she just went so deeply into people's lives. Mm. And it's one thing to be able to go deeply into the life of one interview subject, but to go deeply into the lives of couples and look at how they're interacting with each other. Mm. It's a quite remarkable thing. And I would say my favorite of Adams is uh, Half the Way Home, mm -hmm. uh, which was a difficult book for him to write. Um, he had a very difficult uh, uh, judgmental father mm -hmm. who uh, wanted a different career for him than writing. And uh, how Adam brought himself to love him Mm -hmm. to separate, <laughs> to live his own life, to come to California, <laughs> to uh, start Mother Jones Magazine, to be a, the author he is. Uh, it, it was kind of a hidden struggle mm -hmm. in that, which I saw um, up close and personal. And it felt like such triumph to be his own person, but put his father in context, mm -hmm. understand what was hugely admirable about him too. So to reach a generosity of spirit mm -hmm. uh, was a journey. So I loved that. I do love that book. Of his others, I would say Bury the Chains is my favorite, mm. uh, which is a book about how... Um, it could be possible to uh, end the British slave trade mm -hmm. um, and the movement, the kooky movement of people, of Quakers and uh, Thomas Clarkson, this uh, uh, Presbyterian minister, how they cooperated. It had so many, I guess I like the heroes, mm -hmm. uh, you know? It, you can have a grim story, but when you have some people together that actually change things, um, and he's, he somehow has a way of going for a, for a moment that in one year uh, every British person is drinking their tea with sugar, and mm -hmm. that sugar is uh, 
produced by slave labor. And then you have a mere, what, 10 years later, and there's a mass movement against that. And no more sugar in the tea. That's, that's the wrong... Uh, there's a sin attached to it. So I love that book. What's your favorite of your books? Um, I'll tell you, I think Strangers in Their Own mm. Land. Mm. Um, it was... Um, you know, in my childhood, uh, we traveled around a bit because uh, um, of my dad's job, and this felt like a foreign land to me. Um, uh, it was Louisiana, the second poorest state uh, in the Union, um, and very uh, right-wing. And I... Um, so I just kind of settled in there and, I, and dealt with this paradox um, of how it could be that this porous state, uh, most polluted, uh, with a life expectancy 10 years uh, less than the rest of the country because of this contamination, it's a petrochemical center of development and otherwise very poor. And it took 40% of its uh, state government was from federal funds. They took uh, far more money from the federal government than they gave to it in tax dollars and hated the federal government. Mm -hmm. So, for which my father worked all his life. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> uh, so it, it just kind of stepping into that paradox. And I loved... Um, Somehow, there was enough Southern hospitality to a white person, anyway, that you can say, I come from Mars. I'm really, <laughs> I come right up front. Look, uh, I'm not one of you, you know. Berkeley, California is Mars. Is, <laughs> that's right. <Yeah. laughs> I do come from Mars, my breathing machine. And um, <laughs> they'd say, yeah, well... Uh, you don't know what we're like. You, you don't know us. And I would say, yes, that's true. And I'm worried about the split in our country. And they'd say, yeah, well, we're worried about that too. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, good. Well, that's why I'm here, for you to teach me about your life and how you see things. And um, that was a thrill. There was one woman, gospel singer in a uh, a um, Pentecostal megachurch uh, who had a meeting of uh, uh, the Republican women of Southwest Louisiana. I was having some gumbo at this meeting. And she said, I love Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> and I thought, holy shit. <laughs> I didn't say it. Oh, <laughs> Love to, could we sit down to sweet teas and you tell me about that? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, as she, in the next few days, we did that, and she, I'd ask her, Why did you uh, love Rush Limbaugh? What was that appeal? Oh, he's, he's my dear heart. He, he hates feminazis. Mm -hmm. mm. So <laughs> I thought, I hope she hasn't Googled me. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, then 
uh, she went on to environmentalists, and they were enviro-wackos, mm -hmm. and so on. And she would just watch my face, I guess, you know? Uh-huh. So I'd sort of, tell me about that. What is an, an enviro-wacko? And then she stopped me, and she said, I know you don't agree with anything I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I said, that, is, it, is it hard for you? I thought, well, she's watching me. Mm -hmm. And I told her, no, it's not hard. I've taken my alarm system off. And uh, I'm here to learn mm -hmm. uh, from you. And I'm grateful to you for sharing your experience. And she said, oh, I know about that. There are times I take my alarm system off, too. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm uh, with my children and they're upset. I put my own worries aside. And then she later said, you're my first Democratic friend. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun in that kind of way. Yeah. And it was a bold book to do, which um, at first uh, she had trouble convincing anybody to publish it. Every... <laughs> major New York publishing house turned down the book proposal for Strangers in Their Own Land. And uh, finally, it was published by a small nonprofit mm -hmm. uh, press in New York. And a lot of those publishers who turned it down were there at the banquet for the National Book Award. She <laughs> 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 <her> was recognized. <laughs> so, uh, uh. Now, Arlie, did you learn this? diplomatic ability from your father? Your father was an ambassador. And were, did you, I think he first, his first assignment as ambassador was in 57, something like that. So mm -hmm. how you were, you were a late, late teenager or something? Did you I, go with him? I, I was 12, yeah. Oh, 12. Oh. You've yeah. really done your homework, George. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> really. Yeah. Yeah. Hate yeah. to think what you found out about me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm skipping that stuff out. Yeah. <laughs> I think... Uh, the experience of living, we, we lived in Israel when I was 12, mm -hmm. and finding myself the only one on the playground that doesn't speak Hebrew, and uh, being a foot taller than everyone, and with funny Oxford shoes, <laughs> and uh, just uh, being the stranger, and having to make friends. Mm -hmm. it, it was a Scottish mission school, so mm -hmm. very strict. It, it was an adjustment, let me say that. And you were a Quaker in the middle of that? I, w I was born Unitarian. Oh, not, okay. not Quaker, right. but pretty close. You know, close enough. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Unitarians is y'all come kind yeah, of. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that uh, was both the hardest thing in my young life, but also the best thing, because mm -hmm. then I thought, wow, there's a big world out of there, mm -hmm. and um, I'm not central in it, and it's interesting, and it good, it's goodness, if I could come to understand it. So I think that's affected me, yeah, as what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, I, I thought, well, I'm my dad's assistant. You know, so <laughs> I'll go out and meet all these people. 
he didn't think that. <laughs> but uh, I think that's how it got going and being interested in other worlds. Mm -hmm. yeah. Before I forget to mention it, uh, Adam, you mentioned your book, uh, To End All Wars, and uh, Humanities West had a program where you yeah. spoke at. That's been more than a decade or so before, and we had a program on World War I. That, that lecture that you gave, extremely moving uh, with the visuals, and it was just an extremely moving. I think Humanities West has done all these programs all down the years, and that's often cited as one of the most moving experiences people have had, and that's still available on the humaniteswest.org uh, website. You can see the video of that if you're uh -huh. interested, because it's still moving even just as a video. In person, of course, that's always no. more, but no. even as a video, it's moving. Mm. So, um, mm. you're, you're working together. We, we've got that. Now, you, in addition to books, you had children, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Very together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, and on that score, did your work on sharing housework and everything come from personal experience, or was that sociological work? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was very personal. Uh, 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 and Adam's been wonderful, absolutely wonderful from uh, the get-go. And... Um, Although you shouldn't have to be called wonderful for doing half the work. <laughs> but that is the world we live in, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Even 30% yeah. would be get wonderful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's become a very big issue in America mm -hmm. uh, as uh, 70 now, 2% uh, of prime age women are in the labor force, most of them mm -hmm. uh, full time. And. Uh, if you ask kids, kids six and under, 60% um, of them, every adult in the uh, works, in the household works. So it, it's, a big, it's a big issue. And we're at a very privileged kind of moment of that issue, both with professional jobs and... Uh, uh, but it has its personal side and I... Uh, yeah, I came to one idea that came out of that book was the economy of gratitude. Mm -hmm. How how does gratitude work? Mm -hmm. You know, and if uh, if you happen to luck out and find an extraordinary person, there's a very rich economy of, of gratitude. I remember uh, seeing Adam when Gabriel was just a baby, and. It was my night to sleep, <laughs> and you were on, and I just saw this bleary-eyed husband, you know, barely keeping his eyes up and petting Gabriel, and I just felt he's he's in there with me. This is not solitary. This is so mutual. And I felt grateful. Yeah. yeah, you probably heard the same thing we did with when when our children were young. I asked somebody, "When does the sleep deprivation end?" Yeah, you know, and, and to, to someone with more experience, and one of the first said, "When they go to college." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that good. wasn't true. Yeah, yeah, I didn't find that true. It really, no. came to an end at three or yeah. four or five or something yeah. like that. But yeah. but there's a little truth to the other one too. <laughs> yeah. So. One of the big issues that you write about, of course, is, is women's work and, and the women's position and so on. And you, you have um, 
the framework of where women have come from and where they've gone. And I think one of the things we can thank the 20th century for is that anyone that creates a society that says women shouldn't be educated you know, will be right next to the Flat Earth Society. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. that, that mm. The evidence is pretty obvious yeah. that women should be educated, everybody should be educated. And when we do that, it's kind of interesting because it's, it hasn't been that, that long right. that we didn't educate anybody. Yeah. You know, yeah. it has, the, the number of years before the women got educated is only 150 or so on, or 250, to, to, to have spread into the general population. So yeah. we can take from that a little optimism that we're learning relatively quickly, but it's still yeah. kind of amazing that it took that long. Yeah. So, so yeah. why don't you yeah. say a little bit about, you know, I mean, do you think that that is an irretrievable, you know, uh, problem that has come to, to an end? Or do you think that it can, I mean, obviously it'll go up and down in popularity, but it doesn't seem possible that a society would say, we're not going to educate our women anymore. And I don't mean the ones who all do it now. Because ironically, it's an economic value. Yes, you know, it's it a is. big economic value. Yes, it so, is. And, and, and money talks. So, <laughs> <laughs> even so, if it's not humane, you know, if, even if there's no humane reason, there's an economic reason for this one. So, yeah. So, so does education talk? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, uh, women who are educated are much more likely to read to their children to be mm -hmm. um, uh, have higher standards for being a good parent. So there's, there's that. And then um, employers have finally caught a clue that <laughs> <laughs> these are very good employees, um, more likely to be honest, for example, mm -hmm. than male employees. Uh, and uh, so it's something that really uh, could make a better world. Mm -hmm. But I feel like... Um, in the United States, we're in a kind of a stalled gender revolution because um, uh, because there were really two voices to the feminist movement, and one said, "Look, equal, yes, but what are we getting equal to? Mm -hmm. you now we need to change mm -hmm. the society. Uh, it needs to be a more family-friendly place." And uh, other, and he's changed in other ways too. And the second voice was, no, let's join the boys' game. Let's mm -hmm. leave it the way it is. We just want to lean in. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, unfortunately, the second voice, the it, was, it was the one that won. Mm -hmm. And Herbert Marcuse talks about um, resistance through incorporation. And that's sort of what capitalism has done to feminism. It's like, okay, we're going to take you in, all you women, but on our terms, no child, uh, on-site childcare, no parental leave. Uh, we're going to up those hours, which mm -hmm. the time bond is about. And um, so there was a UNESCO study of all of, of the rich countries, uh, uh, 17, I think, in all, um, and how's the U.S. doing? Mm -hmm. Well, it's near the bottom mm -hmm. on uh, families that have dinner together, mm -hmm. you know, three times a week or more. Uh, the U.S., I think, uh, was almost at the bottom. Are you, um, is your kid say they're happy? Does the kid say uh, he has friends? Mm -hmm. uh, does he smoke pot? Mm -hmm. 
is he um, or she. So the U.S. is, uh, you know, the richest of rich countries has the highest proportion who are poor. So that's not on the agenda to fix. And so we're limping along. Mm. Yes, women, educated women are in, but uh, women have changed, but not much else has mm. <laughs> in, in regard to the structure of the, the workplace. So I think we're halfway there mm -hmm. um, to make this a happy outcome. Norway, <laughs> my, my arm is always getting uh, <laughs> uh, tired of pointing to Norway, but <laughs> it, 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 it has, you know, 70% of women are, are in the labor force. They're working full-time, but full-time in Norway is 35 yeah. hours a week. And those kids are thriving. That's because they've got an infrastructure that's, that's uh, um, very enlightened. So I would, I, it's, being in the workforce isn't enough mm. in, in our culture, and we have a job ahead, <laughs> I think. I have lots and lots more questions, but if you have questions, we'll, we'll take questions from the audience very soon. Uh, Adam, we'll, you can take the male side of this question. <laughs> Not that I want to gender the questions yeah. here. <laughs> um, but so now there's another reaction to this, which is uh, men feeling displaced and how that is. And I, I know you're not a sociologist, but a historian, but having lived with a sociologist, I'm he's pretty, a pretty so aware I, of the issue. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you speak to that? If you think that that's a big problem or if that's just an adjustment that's taking place as everything else changes and that, that won't be too I terrible. think it's a huge issue right now because one of the things that's happening in this country is that the percentage of women who are graduating from college, who are graduating from graduate schools, is now higher than men. Mm -hmm. uh, even in, you know, sort of traditionally mainly male occupations like medicine, law, and so forth. Uh, and journalism. And, you know, the journalism school at Berkeley, where I, where I teach, has been like at least two-thirds women for the last 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think what happens is that a lot of men are feeling left behind. I mean, Arlie writes about these left, left behind parts of the country, mm -hmm. uh, like Louisiana, but there's also a sort of left behind in gender relations. And in families where, you know, the, the wife is more educated, can get a better job and so forth, I, th I think the, a lot of the attempt that the people on the far right in this country make to speak to the politics of grievance, mm -hmm. that one of those grievances is on the part of men, and especially blue-collar men, is not just that their part of the country is being left behind economically, but somehow the traditional male role is being left behind. Uh, that being a man is no longer uh, a sort of guarantee of being the biggest earner in the family, mm -hmm. of being the one who really calls the shots in the family, if the family even stays together. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a lot of shakiness on this score, mm -hmm. which... Uh, interweaves with the grievances people have about other things as well. Ah. Just 
Mm-hmm. And the, the Proud Boys, you did a... Yeah, actually, uh, 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 I, I did a review recently of a book about the Proud Boys. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of interesting things there. You know, they, they, this was this militia group, which was very important in the January 6th uh, central to the storming of the, of the U.S. Capitol. It is the Proud Boys. It's not the Proud Girls. And not the Proud Men. Yeah. And uh, there, somebody did a study of the number of listeners that the guy who started this group got to webcasts uh, where, you know, we get a million or more listeners or viewers to these things. The ones that he did about... uh, uh, wanting to restore the traditional family got many more viewers than those about other subjects. Mm-hmm. And a big part of their ideology is women belong in the home, mm-hmm. nowhere else. Mm-hmm. The man is the head of the family. So I think that's, that's very much a part of the way the right wing in this country sees the world. Well, we have questions coming in online. Um, if anybody has, I, it's hard with the lights for me to mm-hmm. see the audience. So Dan, if you see someone with their here's yeah. one, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. you can bring one. But let me ask you a question from online first. What concerns you the most about the current state of our country? What gives you the most hope? What's the two biggest things? Well, that's a tough question. But yeah. <laughs> I should have saved that for yeah. the end when we had yeah. one minute yeah. left. <laughs> uh, well, I am most worried. I think Adam too about the rise of the right. Mm-hmm. And uh, was January 6th a rehearsal? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in other words, p- people on the right at the moment are feeling shamed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they went uh, to uh, the Capitol feeling proud, you know, feeling that they were carrying the American flag and they were being the patriots and they were rescuing us from fraud, given the lie this is all based on. And uh, now the FBI has notices up in small towns, have you, you know, and they feel uh, criminalized. They were criminals in that, but there's a kind of a great fall shame that is leading the I think the uh, Tucker Carlson's to double down on the lie mm-hmm. uh, oh you know nothing bad so there is a boil mm-hmm. there is an emotional uh, turmoil on the right and I am the most worried about that that is not gonna go away mm-hmm. I think Trump may fit but there is, as Adam called it, kind of a, a turmoil, a culture of grievance uh, that's to worry about, I think. I think I am most worried about the total evaporation of truth from so much political dialogue in this country. And, you know, even in these, these, these statements that have come out from in the trial that Fox News is having right now with Dominion voting systems, you know, where you see all these Fox uh, executives who know that the stuff that they're 
cultivating that uh, there was something suspicious about the election. They know it's nonsense. Mm -hmm. And these are executives of the most widely watched broadcast network in this country. There is just a total disregard for truth on behalf of, of, of these people. Donald Trump himself set the most spectacular example. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Washington Post was keeping a running tally of the number of untruths he spoke. I think it was up above 5,000 by the, by the end of his presidency. And that, to me, is just so central to the danger of the erosion of democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, Hitler understood that very well. You mm -hmm. repeat the lie often and often and often enough, and people finally start to believe it. And of course, with all of the marketing techniques we have today, the audience surveys and so on, people know how to craft that lie mm -hmm. so that it speaks to people's underlying anxieties and sense of, of grievances. And that's a very scary thing for me. Yeah. Uh, the January 6th and, and what happened, like you said, uh, also they, they thought they were doing one thing and then they suddenly found out everybody else looks at it differently and that that's, leaves them in turmoil. But, but I think one of the few things right now that can give us some hope, because the question was also about hope, is that uh, the best thing about anarchy is that it's hard to get it organized. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> um, so any, any other hope besides that one that we can... <laughs> I take a lot of hope from, you know, just the individuals, some of the young people that I see teaching at Berkeley, uh, you know, who are passionate about exposing injustice, going out into the world, doing that as journalists, writers, filmmakers of one sort or another. I, I sort of take my hope from certain individual people uh, I, I sort of would point to them rather than to um, to a particular trend. Sometimes somebody shows the way for something to be done that you didn't think was possible. Mm -hmm. uh, our dear friend Paul Farmer, who died last year, was, I think we both feel, the, the greatest person either of us has ever known, uh, You know, was somebody who showed that it was possible to go <clears throat> not just to the poorest countries in the world, but to the poorest part of the poorest yeah. country yeah. and show people what, you know, top quality health care could be and to make people care about it, to make people in this country care about supporting that, to set a standard uh, that could be applied elsewhere. And there are people like that, what he's done, what Brian Stevenson has done in fighting the death penalty, um, <laughs> These are people who inspire me and think yeah. that, make me think that there's hope. I think something else that's hopeful is uh, the work uh, being done on climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, big problem ahead, but uh, some, uh, California are... We have to our, put in a. We have to put in, put in a good well, word for our, <laughs> our, our oldest son, who's head of the California State <laughs> Energy Commission. And, and so, uh, but look the, at what's the happened. fact that you know the electricity that's powering these lights mm -hmm. is coming from more than sixty percent renewable sources. He's taken my life. And there's no other you right? know major economy in the world. I don't think that can say that. Yeah. Um, so there are places where there's good things happening. And the other thing is that the rest of the nation is using more and more electricity. 
mm-hmm. but California is using less and less. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're very proud, and uh, that's a hopeful thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we've uh, accomplished a lot as a state. It wasn't just the summer of love that California got to the, gave to the world, right? right? No. <laughs> <laughs> right. So someone has the microphone out here and has a question. Yeah, great. Hi, we've traveled, my husband and I, about eight months in rural America on two-lane roads, and I love your book, Arlie. Um, and I wanted to ask both of you if you have any comments based on, you know, talk your deep narrative and some of the research you did on how the narrative of our politics for the democratic or progressive people might change, might be augmented with some of the ideas, because you guys have a very complex understanding of it in the family, gender relations at the community level. So yeah. you must have ideas of how we can improve our messaging or our mm. narrative. Oh, that's a wonderful question. You know, uh, the last time I was down in uh, Louisiana, I was with the PBS uh, team, Paul Solomon, um, for the news hour was re-interviewing some of the people that uh, I interviewed for strangers. And along with us was a young man uh, just out of Yale interested in starting uh, an exchange program. Uh, It's called uh, the American Exchange uh, Project. And the idea is to get senior students... Uh, high school seniors. High school seniors uh, from the south to go north. Uh, first, they meet on Google Chat, so they get to know each other, one classroom with another classroom. And then they visit each other for uh, two weeks. Mm-hmm. Each south way. to go north and north to go south. Mm-hmm. And uh, coasts go inland. Inland goes the coast. Now, 23 different uh, states are involved in this. Hmm. And um, some of the people I interviewed have have been in helping, helping <laughs> from the Lake Charles point of view um, to send students from the South-North. So, and he's getting it up to scale. This is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm on the board of this thing and very excited by it. So I think that's one thing we could do. Or there could be a national service where, again, you get um, a mixing and matching. We used to have other ways of people who grow up in different areas uh, getting to know each other. There used to be a, not that it was great, but a uh, compulsory draft that got people of different uh, races and regions together. There used to be a vital labor union movement where, again, people uh, came to know each other. We're without those. We need a new one. And I think this project is a good beginning, but we need to scale it up. All right. Uh, There's another online question. What is the best piece of personal or professional advice that you've received and who gave it to you? Besides each other. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I'm you, just going to say. You don't have to you know, I mean, just take that one away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. I'm stumped. I can't think of sort of a single. I think we've helped each other quite yeah. a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of the kinds of advice we could say something about. One is let it go. <laughs> you know, if you're worried about someone or uh, think someone's mad at you or, you know. 
let it go. This may speak more to my own e egotism. I can think of advice I've given other people. <laughs> 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 but, uh, so yeah, so you're the narcissist, and, and you like Disney, apparently. Let it go. Is it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think we yeah, would end with uh, yeah, Disney yeah, advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you picked up that when you were in San Let Santa it go, Anna. but also <laughs> reach out. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. It's a big wide world out there. Um, and we have gotten boxed in in a scary way. Yeah. So. And we, we've done it to ourselves. I mean, yes. that's, that's the crucial thing. Some yeah. things are so simple. There's just simple principles. They're not really that difficult of what makes things work in an institution better. And we tend to forget them because of our, whatever we're eagerly yeah. working on. I have one little other, this is a, kind of an edgy point mm -hmm. to that. Perfect. But. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think on uh, the left, there's a lot of resistance mm -hmm. to drawing, making empathy bridges mm -hmm. across that difference, more actually than on the right. Um, uh, when I gave a talk at Louisiana State University um, honors program, I thought, uh, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, I've said some really honest things about uh, this state and uh, this perspective, uh, no, they loved it. I hadn't told them anything new. Mm -hmm. You know, they knew they had a, a, a lot to work on and um, wanted help on how to get going. But I gave a talk at a very um, elite uh, school, Pomona, uh, here in California, oh, I don't even have to prepare talking to, you know, <laughs> this is talking to the choir. No, you, there, you want us to talk to all those racists out there? You know, a kind of uh, almost maybe get to think about the left as kind of anxiously bubbleizing itself mm. as it fears downward mobility with the rise of the right. Right. You know, I worked so hard. I was a first-gen student, you know, and uh, a woman in male field. Are you going to take it away from me? And there's a kind of a, of a retrenchment that's not good news. It's, uh, it's a sign of decline, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, so I worry about that, and uh, I think we need to relax that anxiety that reaching out is good. And we have... Uh, I think history's heroes, starting with Nelson Mandela, <laughs> are, are our guides on that. It's interesting how you mentioned how California did so well, you know, in, in a lot of things. And uh, but California is obviously people from all over poured in here. So we have a mixture of all kinds of cultures and, and differences. Yeah. And I always think, you know, if only people could realize living in San Francisco, for example, you know, yeah. somebody comes from Wisconsin, somebody comes from Southern California. Walking down the street at the same time in the winter, one says, this is really warm. The other one says, this is really cold. Yeah. You know? and we can actually walk down the street with one person thinking it's really cold and one person thinking yeah. it's really warm, and we can get along. Yeah. It's not that hard. Yeah. It's not that hard. I mean, other issues are a little bit more personal than how cold we are. Yeah. But uh, you know, a lot of things in our life are not that much different than that, and it's all right if one person thinks this way and you think another way, as long as it doesn't go over certain yeah. boundaries. Now, right. the tighter you draw the boundaries, the harder it is to have a democratic society, basically. Yeah. And so, so we have to find that common ground 
That's yeah. right. And, and it's not that hard to find. It's the same common ground that used to be there. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, right. And, and people did get along and so on. So, but, but as you said, when we're talking about the, the, the marriage thing and that people don't want someone to marry, religion used to be that barrier. Mm -hmm. and, right. and, and then, you know, there have been plenty of other barriers. People might make up a new barrier if we get rid of the if yeah. we get, yeah. if we get rid of this one because they will. the barriers are comfortable yeah. to them yeah. or something. Yes. But yeah. but the principle stays the same. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the barriers keep changing and moving. Yeah. Right. So, is there another question in the audience? Okay, great. Thank you. Um, I was struck by a comment you made, Arlie. Um, you said when you were talking about your experience in Israel, you said there uh, there's a big world and I'm not central in it. And um, I had similar feelings as a child traveling, and I also studied sociology. And I'm wondering if you think that this experience of seeing the vastness of the world when you were young kind of sharpened your sociological imagination. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Um, I think um, we all have different I think, uh, experiences of uh, being the other to other people and uh, being kind of lost uh, without, uh, you know, you don't have friends. Uh, but that's um, can be a very growing experience for us all if we're held. In other words, I was with my family, and I think my mother especially, kind of, you know, she held me while I was challenged. And that's, I think, the paradigm for us all uh, as we face all the issues that we care about. Um, but I'm glad I hear exactly all you said, but you said you're a sociology major, and you, did you say you're a new mother? <laughs> Good. Uh. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Good luck. <laughs> well, that's a great way to end another event of the Commonwealth Club yeah. uh, in its 121st uh. year of enlightened discussion. Uh. Thank you very much, Adam and Arlie, for joining uh. us and, uh. and explaining what you've done. Thank you, George. Great question. Great question. And so in the... Uh, history of the Commonwealth Club and the history of Adam and Arlie at the Commonwealth Club because we've done a lot of things here together. So thank you very much for coming. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.